Today is the outrageous mercy of God, and our psalm text is Psalm 51. So hear God's word to us from Psalm 51, Psalm of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my, tra- my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a God, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight, will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you would teach us of your mercy this morning from this well-known psalm and well-known story. Help us to know and experience what it means to be those who uh, need mercy and receive mercy, and to know that wherever we find ourselves, no matter how good we might think we are or, or how terrible we are, or how beyond uh, the pale or beyond pardon we know, Lord, that you are a God that moves forward towards us and not away from us. And we thank you for that. So move towards us this morning through your word and your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of the Psalms, we know very little about the context and the events um, around which they're written. But Psalm 51 is a notorious Uh, exception. The occasion of the psalm comes from the most infamous infamous and shameful events in the life of King David. Um, You can read about them in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And it's worth recounting um, the whole story. David has established his rule as the king of Israel. And he has, he is in Jerusalem. And that is now the capital of 
the nation, and he is at home while his armies are off at war. And he gets up from his couch, and he walks along the roof of his palace, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he inquires after the woman, and he learns that her name is Bathsheba, and that she is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, who happens to be one of David's faithful soldiers. David sends his messengers and requests the woman's presence in his uh, home. She comes to the king, they sleep together, and she goes back home. Now, who knows what David's long-term intentions were, um, whether this was a one-time sexual tryst or uh, what his plans were, but um, it come... <clears throat> It becomes something much more serious than he was expecting. Bathsheba informs David that she is pregnant. And in learning this fact, David immediately hatches a rather elaborate plan to cover up their sexual uh, affair and the pregnancy. And so what he does is he calls Uriah back from war from the front and in hopes that seeing his wife again, he'll sleep with his wife, and, that, and thereby disguise the identity of the, the, father's, uh, the child's father, right? But this backfires. Uriah is a very faithful soldier, and he doesn't receive the, the offer of R&R, &R, and he sleeps out front of his house. David then tries to get him drunk, hoping that he'll go home and sleep with his wife, but that also doesn't work. And so what David does then is simply... Uh, decides, he tells Joab, his general, um, to put Uriah at the front line where the fighting is the fiercest so that he's sure to die. And so Joab does this. And of course, Uriah dies in battle. After the death of Uriah is announced, Bathsheba mourns the death of her husband, but then David takes her as his wife into his own home. Now, David seems to have gotten away with his crimes, his infidelities, um, by successfully covering it up. <clears throat> and who knows, right, what the state of David's own conscience was, or whether he was conflicted about all this, or seemed to be oblivious to us. But the narrator in Samuel tells us that the Lord was very displeased with David. And eventually, and it takes some time, the Lord summons Nathan the prophet to confront David. And it's only in being confronted with Nathan that David sort of the, comes to his senses and repents and sees the extent of the evil that he's done. So here are the sins and the crimes which we can lay at David's feet from this incident. Lust, adultery, betrayal, theft, deception, fraud, obstruction of justice, corruption, reckless endangerment of life, abuse of power, conspiracy, and murder. Those are David's crimes. So David's plea of mercy in Psalm 51 um, happens in the light of these events. Can you imagine something similar happening today? of a politician or a powerful person. Can you imagine what the headlines would be, what the sentiment would be towards this person? 
It would be absolute outrage. Absolute outrage, and rightfully so. And rightfully so. And can you imagine a prayer <laughs> or a confession from a David from a prison cell, because he would be imprisoned, and that being received as instruction, would we take it seriously or accept it as genuine? Probably not. Uh, this past year, there was a, a book written by an author, a fiction writer named Amber Sparks, um, that was getting a fair amount of press. Calls uh, the name of the book is a series of short stories called "And I Don't Forgive You" and other stories of revenge. Um, Sparks, uh, in an interview about this book, she talks about she conceived this book as a story of anti-redemption, and the trigger or the the, the cause or the occasion of it was. In, in the light of all the Me Too sort of revelations where you had uh, particularly men in powerful positions who were harassing women and, so, and in some cases abusing them and exploiting them who are finally being exposed and held accountable and in some cases imprisoned. But then many of them uh, sort of uh, seeking forgiveness and restoration. And she uh, objects to the storyline of redemption in a way where she says, you know, some, somebody does something really bad they ask for forgiveness, we all learn something, and then we tie a neat bow on it, and then let's move on, right? And uh, this made her angry. And so she conceives of, uh, she wanted to imagine a world, uh, an anti-redemption story. And one of the things she says in commenting on her work is about the people she has in mind is that um, some people simply do not deserve mercy. They do not deserve forgiveness. And it is not required of those who have been victimized by them to give them the gift of forgiveness. So her, she writes a story of anti-redemption. I'm certain King David would be one of those people that, uh, <laughs> in her estimation, would not be deserving of mercy. See, I think it's really easy for us to have warm and fuzzy feelings uh, about God's mercy and grace towards sinners as long as it stays in the abstract. When there's no specific wrong in view or no crime in mind, but when we begin to talk about specifics, when we begin to identify concrete wrongs, real people, when we begin to see the real damage done, the people hurt, the lives ruined, then it's a different matter. Mercy then feels like a compromise of justice. Mercy then seems like a re-injury of those who have been victimized or done wrong to. We think that the most objectionable attributes of God in the Bible are, are God's wrath and judgment. But once you understand God's wrath and judgment in the context of his justice, they actually are very, very logical and very reasonable. And everyone wants a God of justice and wrath who has suffered serious injustice in their life. What is morally outrageous is not a God of wrath and justice. What is morally outrageous is a God of mercy and grace. God's mercy is outrageous. And if we're honest with ourselves, it is outrageous that God would extend mercy and forgiveness to King David and people like King David for their crimes. That is morally outrageous. And I think if anything calls into question 
God's good governance and running of the universe, it's not the fact that he expresses wrath and judgment. It's that he shows mercy and grace. I think you have to wrestle with this. Because we, we have so domesticated God's mercy. If you want to grasp the mercy of God, it has to be undomesticated. You have to see how outrageous it is. So what does Psalm 51 teach us about the mercy of God? The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the way that, God, or the way that David addresses God. As a psalmist, he, he speaks of God's character, but he doesn't make assertions about God's mercy so much as he makes requests of God's mercy. He doesn't so much speak as one who is confident and presumes he has received mercy, but as one who requests it. The, the, the distinction here is quite subtle, but I think it's important. The beginning of the, of the psalm, it says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. There's a conditional aspect of David's prayer in which he understands that God is merciful, but that as merciful, God is not required to give mercy. He knows that God is merciful, but he knows that he can't demand mercy. God does not owe David mercy. For mercy to be mercy, that means it can't be owed. The only thing that God owes us, the only thing that God owes David is justice. That's the only thing you can ask of God and demand of God is justice. You cannot demand of him mercy. Uh, Amber Sparks, I think, is correct when she says that nobody, that some people aren't deserving of forgiveness and mercy. More accurately, nobody is <laughs> deserving of mercy or forgiveness. David knows this. Mercy is not mercy if the basis for the offer of mercy is in the person receiving it rather than the person who gives it. See, when we show mercy in our, as human beings, um, and whether we decide to be merciful or not, generally we're, we're looking for some, something in the person. Sincerity uh, or some, something worth saving or a relationship, you know, something good in the person. But God's mercy is very different. God's mercy is not based in us because he pities us like he sees something worth saving or good, but he, it's in him. He's magnanimous. He's got a big heart. Mercy is gratuitous. Mercy is unwarranted. Mercy cannot be merited. Nobody can lay claim to, to mercy as something that God owes them. And if God uh, were to choose not to extend mercy, uh, we could not say that he's done something wrong or that he's being unfair or just. So God's mercy is his forbearance towards us, his patience, his compassion. When we do wrong, it is his suspending or remitting the full punishment or the full consequences of our wrongdoing. Nevertheless, when God shows mercy, God does not um, undermine or, sus or suspend the true demands of justice. When God shows mercy, he does not relax justice, in a sense. 
He does not show mercy in a way that is contrary to what is right and just. God's mercy is a just mercy. Um, Mercy is not him turning a blind eye or looking the other way or patting us on the back and saying, okay, just don't do it again. And I want to recall um, from a a couple weeks back when I talked about the wrath of God, and I I told you, don't think about the wrath of God and the love of God as two things that are fighting in God for, you know, preeminence. God's attributes are in perfect harmony and symmetry with one another. And God's mercy is ordered and, and leads towards justice. It's not him being indulgent. It serves the ends of justice. And so the reception, when we receive mercy in our lives, and this is important, receiving mercy really is, is, is a necessary condition or thing that we need in order to come to terms truly with the harm that our sin does. I think this is a really important thing about mercy. The irony is, is that we can never really confront the true injustice of our own hearts in a deep way until, unless we receive God's mercy. Again, mercy is not a free pass. Mercy is an opportunity and an invitation by God to turn and repent. That's so important to get. David's reception of mercy um, comes as a kind of severe mercy. Have you heard that? This is a phrase of C.S. Lewis, um, as a severe mercy. He, 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 you know, he orchestrates um, the murder of, of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and seems to go on with life as normal. And he doesn't seem to reckon with the true heinousness of his crime. He didn't really get caught, it seems, right? So God sends Nathan, the prophet, to confront him and to rebuke him. And what God does is he does bring severe judgment upon David. And I encourage you to read the story. God offers mercy and forgiveness to David, but he does not spare David the consequences of his sin. You know, what he did will ripple, not only through his entire family, but through the entire kingdom. God brings judgment upon David, and yet still mercy. He saves him, because the alternative was that God would have utterly destroyed David and his whole lineage and line. And yet God's mercy intervenes, and David turns. So again, we often think of God's mercy and God's anger as like two opposite things. But they they work. God, God was angry with David. And yet his anger was ordered towards mercy. Um, David Paulson has a a book, a a quite excellent book, called uh, Good and Angry, Redeeming Anger, Irritation, Complaining, and Bitterness. And in that book, it's really for people who struggle, I mean, who, you know, addressing human anger, but in that book he talks a lot about God and God's anger, and that God's anger is good, because it's righteous. God's anger is ordered towards calling out what is wrong in a situation, but he describes God's anger as the constructive displeasure of mercy. I like that. That God's anger and judgments in our life is the constructive displeasure of mercy. It is him saying, wake up or you're going to (laughs) die. And there's sometimes the wake-up call um, needs to um, be severe, a severe mercy. See, when God shows anger or wrath, it is not simply for the sake of punishment, 
bloodthirst. He needs his pound of flesh. When God expresses displeasure in the form of anger or judgment in our lives, it is for the sake of mercy. It is a severe mercy to turn us off of the path of destruction and death onto the path of life. The function of God's law in our lives is to reveal sin. That is one of the functions of God's law in our life, is to identify and to reveal sin. But you never, as a person, you never really come to terms with sin in your own life, specific to your own person, in the absence of God's mercy. You simply cannot do it. Uh, When David prays in, in the psalm, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. He, he has in mind here is like, you know, we can often think about our sin in very external categories. It's like, well, I did this bad thing. But, but it's like we don't often have the, the, the capacity or the strength emotionally to trace the bad things into the depths of our heart and to self-examine and to sit with it and try to understand. And David's prayer in many parts is, he's like, Lord, I, um, you delight in the truth in the inward parts, in the secret heart. And God's mercy, God's mercy teaches us about the depth of our sin. We need God's mercy to confront the true depravity and depth of our own sinfulness. And David is very aware of this. Um, And he confesses, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. As David experiences the mercy of God, he has a new insight into himself as a sinner. Um, There's two things I just want to identify here about David's insight into himself as a sinner that I think are important for all of us. The first thing that David says about sin here I think is pretty controversial, or one of them. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, it seems to be a rather strange thing that David uh, would say, against you and you only have I sinned. I mean, he stole a man's wife, got her pregnant, and then when he refused to sort of, you know, go with his plan, he had him killed. (laughs) David hasn't just sinned against God. He sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba, the whole nation, his armies. What is he saying when he says, against you and you only have I sinned? Now, David is not denying that he truly has done wrong and, in a sense, sinned against other people. But what he has in mind here is, I mean, he's, is, it's vertical. <laughs> he's going to the root of his sin. He is repenting deeply. We never fully repent of the wrongs that we have committed against one another unless we have at the same time understood the even deeper wrongdoing that we've done against God. See, it's not possible to do wrong against your neighbor, to kill or steal or to to commit adultery without first sinning against God. There's no sin against another person that's not first to sin against God. And David tries to go to the heart of things. And I think this is um, 
Because again, you know, what is sin? Sin is us making ourselves the moral center of the universe. Sin is us saying, you know, I know what is good and right, and I'm going to do what I want to do. What makes something right or wrong is not whether we determine it or not, not whether our legislative body determines it or not, not whether you poll the nation and they say it's right or wrong. What makes something good or evil is God. And so David goes to the very heart of his sin, which is rebellion and disobedience against the Lord. So that's the first thing. I think it's very important for us to understand um, the mercy of God comes from him as the moral center and governor of the universe. But the second, so, and, and we call this, uh, the Puritans call this the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin is simply that, not simply like that I hurt myself or I hurt another, and that when I see their pain or the ruin that I brought, I feel bad. That's genuine. But the sinfulness of sin is actually recognized, and actually there's this deeper deeper thing I've done against the creator of the universe, my God. And so David recognizes that about his, his sinfulness. But the second piece about realization or insight into sin that he has has to do with his, well, I'll call it his moral vulnerability. Remember, David is a man of whom the scriptures say he was a man after God's own heart. God says this about David. He was a man after God's own heart. If you were to look at David's life prior to this event... Certainly, you know, we see things he does that are questionable, but you would see this is a holy man, this is a godly man, this is a righteous man, a man who has suffered for um, righteousness, and yet he's doing this terrible, heinous, evil, wicked thing. How does that happen? Could you have predicted that? It's not like he was a bad seed and we knew it all along and, well, this just makes apparent sense. And David, I think, helps us understand a really frightening truth that ought to humble all of us. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So what is he saying here? He's not, he's not blaming his mother <laughs> for his bad behavior. He's not, he's not saying it's because of her that I've done this wrong. But what he's saying is this, is that from my womb, I was conceived in sin. Like, th this is what we in, in theology call the doctrine of original sin that all of us are born in sin. All of us, everybody here, we're conceived in it. It's not our mother's fault, but we're all conceived in sin. We all leave the womb, moving away from God. We all come into the world with a disposition not to seek God or do the right, but to do wrong. And this is a, this is a radical truth, like it about human nature, that you know, we're prone not to want to believe but I think it's immensely important for us to come to terms with that. David was a man after God's own heart. Nevertheless, he was vulnerable to temptation and great evil, and he did it. His sin was, um, was not a freak accident. It came out of nowhere. It was rooted in the fact that he was conceived in sin. Again, this should be a warning to all of us. None of us, no matter how good we are, how holy we are, how many good things we've done, are invulnerable to doing really bad things. That's, that's the realism. We'll call that realism of the Christian understanding of the person. I don't care how good 
a person is, they are never invulnerable to evil. You are never invulnerable to doing harm and evil. And that should humble you. That should make you cautious. Now, all this talk of sinfulness might seem like a digression from the topic of God's mercy, but it's not. All of us need God's mercy. That's, that's the point. It's not just some people that need mercy. It's not just King David's and Harvey Weinstein's and, you know, you name it, perpetrators that need mercy. All of us need mercy. All of us need mercy. All of us were conceived in sin. All of us came out of the womb moving away from God. All of us, given the wrong opportunities and the wrong circumstances, are capable of doing great evil in this world. And it is only owing to God's mercy that the full effects of our sin are restrained from having sort of all the consequences and logic that they are. But a true understanding of God's mercy helps us understand that we all stand rightly, properly, under God's judgment. And that without His mercy, we're all hopelessly lost. See, when you understand this, the kind of universal scope of your own, of all human sinfulness and your deep need or your capacity for evil, that makes the mercy of God a far more precious and wonderful truth. Mercy means that above all, God desires to be with us. God desires right relationship. God's mercy as an attribute is, is simply his disposition towards us to want to be in relationship with us and, and a willingness to suffer great harm and absorb great harm in his own person in order that we might turn and come to him in right relationship. The goal of God's mercy is not simply to have pity on us and to keep the suffering away from us. The goal of his mercy is restored relationship. That's what David's praying over and over again. And this is, isn't this not the picture that you have of that beautiful parable that was read? Um, the, pro, the parable of the two sons, right? Where, you know, the son has gone and he's just absolutely wrecked his life and, and wasted all the resources the father has come. And as soon as the father sees him in the distance, he has no idea what his son's attitude towards him is going to be. He runs to him. He runs to him and, 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 and gives him a cloak and brings him in the household. See, God's mercy means that he never cuts us off. He never cuts us off. He never says, enough is enough. I'm done with you. You've gone too far, and I cannot forgive you. God never says that. Never. I don't care how bad you are or what you've done. He never says that. See, as human beings, we just cannot comprehend this. We, we are not capable of it. People who have wronged us, even for little things, we cut them off. We banish them to outer darkness. But God's mercy means that he holds out hope to the very end for as long as possible. They will turn, that we will repent, that we will come to him. He's always longing for us to make it right, to come to our senses, and he's willing to, to be patient and long-suffering and gentle just that we might turn him back. And his mercy is not contingent upon the sincerity of our apologies or repentance or our ability to make restitution or reparation for the things we've done wrong. When it comes to coming towards us in mercy and engaging us, all he needs is a flicker. 
a flicker of sorrow, a shadow of self-doubt, a little less resistance towards him, and he will come rushing towards us. When we yield to his mercy, it not only spares us from experiencing the crushing effects of our own wrongdoing, but it is the beginning of something new. God's mercy is the beginning of something new. Mercy and forgiveness liberates. It liberates. It liberates us from a future that is determined by our past And this brings me to the final thing that we learn about mercy in this this psalm. It is the experience, to experience God's mercy is to experience new creation. Uh, David prays, create, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And the word create here is uh, the same word used in Genesis 1, to speak of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. And it is, a, it is a, a verb in the Hebrew that is uniquely used of God as creator. And so when David says, create in me a clean heart, and he's inviting God as the creator to come in and to make something new of the destruction and the mess that his own sin has created. See, that, see, when human beings, you know, sin is the opposite of creation to, it, as an act, right? Sin is, a destruct, is, is an act of destruction. <laughs> it's not an act of creation. When we sin, what we do is we, we, we inject chaos and ruin. We ruin relationships. We wreck good things. But when God comes in and he shows mercy, what he does is he interrupts the wreckage, he interrupts the consequences of, of all the destruction following. And what he does is he opens up the possibility of new life, of a new beginning. Mercy means that our lives are no longer have to be determined by the worst things we've ever done. They are not our destiny. They are not our destiny. That doesn't mean that we don't still suffer the consequences of the fallout of those things, but ultimately, at the end of the day, they don't write the story. God's mercy means a new beginning and a new story. Mercy has the power to resurrect and to restore that which was seemingly lost and wrecked forever. I want to close in reminding you of how outrageous God's mercy is. Never forget that. It's outrageous because none of us deserve it. None of us can claim it. None of us are, is, is mercy owed to, and yet God gives it. And he's always open he, as a father to be merciful towards us. And so friends, I don't know what you've done, the secrets you hide, the guilt you bear, the shame you have, where you think it's impossible that I could ever receive mercy or forgiveness. God's mercy is for you. He will never cut you off. He, he wants you. He desires you. And I know that we don't want to believe it because it's outrageous. It is absolutely outrageous. And he shows us and he demonstrates this love to us and this mercy in sending his own son. Paul writes in Romans 5, 
God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled and shall we be saved by his life. This is the outrageous mercy of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are like the father in the parable, just waiting, waiting there for us to turn. All you need is, is a flicker. All you need is to be able to see us in your sight and you're ready to run to us. And that really is outrageous um, and incomprehensible. Father, I pray that you would undomesticate your mercy in our hearts and our lives that we would not take it for granted, that we would not think that we owe it or deserve it, and that we would not underestimate how much we need your mercy, Lord. We thank you for sending your Son, and we thank you for the table that we're about to go to that represents the mercy and the great depths that you were willing to go to to save us and to have us for yourself. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.